0: Think for a moment about a time when you heard really, really good news. You know, for some of you, um, it doesn't take much thinking to remember a time whenever you got... The best news you can imagine. Maybe for some of you that was back in college, right? Or some of you are kind of college, close to college time now. And maybe that, for you it was a letter that came in the mail. And uh, the good news was is it came from just the school you wanted to go to and it said you had been accepted, not denied. And uh, that was really good news. Maybe that's an example that you think of, of sometime back in your life. Maybe for you the good news was when for you guys you, you uh, popped the question and she said uh, she said yes. You know, Maybe for you you remember, well that was, that was really, really good news for me to get. Maybe it was a little, you know, a little sketchy. There for a moment. Maybe it was when she said "I do" right down in front of everybody. You know. Then it was kind of like, okay, now we're finally, we're finally there. Wasn't just yes. It was I do. Maybe for you, it was finding out. You know, we're going to have a girl or we're going to have a boy. Maybe for you, more recently, it was hearing. uh, You know, good news associated with family in the midst of the storm. But you know, all of us have instances where we can remember getting good news. What we sometimes miss, however, is the fact that oftentimes that good news comes against the backdrop of really bad news. You know, you think about the events of maybe this past week, some of you got really good news, but it was against the backdrop of bad news. Maybe it was someone with the insurance company that said, hey, the house is covered, but the bad news was you had a tree through your house. You know, we've got a family in our church that I know of, maybe even more, that had four trees through their house, and they're living in just a small portion of their house now because of the effects of the storm. Maybe the good news came in the, against the backdrop of, of bad news. Maybe for you, you found out that, uh, you know, that, that insurance will pay for it. Maybe you found out you can rebuild you know, but it was against the backdrop of really, really bad news. A lot of people this week have received bad news. You know, a a lot of folks I've talked to were somewhat unscathed. You know, they lost maybe a little bit here. Maybe the fence was damaged or, you know, their yard was filled with a lot of debris. But, uh, there were a significant number of people, as you know, on this island, especially in this island community, whose uh, lives were just really, really impacted as a result of what happened through through the hurricane. And uh, in such a way that it's going to take a long time, perhaps, to even come through some of that. And, and against that backdrop, however, there is really good news to be heard. Maybe for you, you experienced some of that. Maybe the good news was that when you woke up on Saturday morning and you walked out when the sun had come out and you saw the, you know, uh, what, what had happened in your yard or up against your house, maybe the good news that came for you was, you know, somebody with a chain saw, or somebody with a rake, uh, or maybe somebody that came and cooked a meal, or somebody that took you in. Maybe it was someone who came alongside of you and cried with you. Maybe for you, it was whenever uh, you, know, you got your power back, right? That was the good news against the, against the backdrop of really bad news. Like, we've got power. We can finally cook again. Or maybe it was when you got cable. Now, that was really good news, right? Uh, unless you're a Georgia fan. And then after the game yesterday, cable is a little overrated, actually. So I uh, don't know that we really need cable that so much after all. But you know, oftentimes, it, it's, the, it's the good news that comes against the backdrop of really bad news. And it's the one thing that never changes, the one best news of all that never can be, can be altered by the circumstances we face, and that's the good news of the message of the gospel. This morning, I had intended to be preaching in the book of Titus. You know, we kind of kicked this off a couple of weeks ago, and uh, uh, not the best timing, I suppose, had we known what was coming, but we kind of did the introduction that we missed last Sunday because of the storm, and today, I just feel compelled not to, to, to jump into Titus chapter one, verse one. We'll plan to start that next Sunday, God willing, but today, I feel like we need to look at a message simply entitled, The Gospel Changes Everything, and I want us to move through various portions of Scripture today in the New Testament, and just look at this simple unchanging truth that the message of the gospel truly does change everything. You know, whenever you, you hear the word gospel, for a lot of people, there's a failure to understand exactly what it is. We have gospel everything today. If you go to the bookstore, you can buy a book, you know, titled The Gospel of Outdoor Grilling or The Gospel of crocheting or the gospel of fly fishing. You've got all these different understandings of what the gospel really is. But when you look in the pages of scripture, you find that that word gospel is just simply an English term that translates a Greek term that means good news. That's simply what it means. It means good news. And when you look through the New Testament, you find at least in the New American Standard translation, this English translation, 99 times in the Bible do we find that simple translation, gospel, good news, found throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, again, most of those means it's a noun, you know, the, ver- the, the noun form meaning good news. But then there's also a verb form, uh, evangelizo, which means to proclaim good news, to announce good news. And when you look in Scripture, what you find is, is that it's the gospel that's really kind of the centerpiece of everything that we read in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. Everything points to the gospel. In the Old Testament, it points forward to the person of Jesus who would come. In the New Testament, we read... And these four books we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read of the message of Jesus who came for us, and then the remainder of the New Testament kind of unpacks what the Gospel really is. And so when we speak of the Gospel, what we're talking about is this amazing proclamation of the best news that the world has ever heard, contained here in the pages of Scripture that we read about. When we look at Jesus' ministry, Jesus was faithful to proclaim the message of the Gospel. You don't have to turn here, but look on the overhead, Matthew chapter 4 we see a little bit of a of a snippet here out of the Ma- the gospel of Matthew chapter 4 that tells us that it was the message of the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Look at what it says in verse 23. It says Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and what? proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, he was proclaiming the message, the good news of the kingdom of God, the reign of God in this world. The reign of God in a person's life. So he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So here's what Jesus did. Jesus would proclaim this message, the good news, but then he would also perform works that validated that message. In this context, he was healing people of diseases and people of illnesses. He he was healing. He was doing deeds that validated the message that he was proclaiming. And so when we look at all of this, uh, of what the word gospel means, what Jesus did as he proclaimed the message of the gospel, and when we look at the pages, especially the New Testament, what we find here is a simple takeaway that I hope you'll jot down. The takeaway is this, that it's the gospel message, it's the gospel that saves us, it's the gospel that defines us, and it's the gospel that ultimately sends us. For us as followers of Christ, for those of us who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, it's the message of the gospel that saves us. It's the message of the gospel that defines who we are. And it's the message of the gospel that ultimately sends us. So if we're talking so much about the gospel, so then what exactly is that message? What is the good news that every part of scripture hinges upon? What is the good news that we call the gospel? The good news begins with bad news. And the bad news, as Scripture says, is that every single one of us here in this building have one thing in common, and that one thing is that every single one of us have sinned, and we've fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of that perfect standard that God has set for us. I don't know if it's true or not, but there's an ancient you know, uh, story that, that the word sin was a, uh, a, a long time ago Greek archery term, that you would have a person with a bow and arrow back, and they would draw the bow, and they would shoot the arrow, and down next to the target would be a person who was a spotter. And as they stood next to that target, whenever the arrow was shot, if it missed the bullseye, if it missed that perfect mark, so to speak, then he would call out to the one who shot the arrow the term that that, that simply means to miss the mark. And it's from that term that we get the word sin. I don't know if that's a true story or not, but it captures perfectly what sin is. It is to miss the mark. It is to fall short of that perfect mark of, of holiness and righteousness and perfection that God has set because that's God's standard, right? God has a standard of righteousness for every single one of us. He has a standard of perfection, which is bad news (laughs) in a sense, because we're not perfect and we're not righteous in and of ourselves. All of us have sinned. Now in this day and age in which we live, if we were to stand up and say, hey, everyone out here, we're all sinners. You're a sinner, right? Someone would say, well, you're being judgmental. But I'm not being judgmental by saying that because all I'm saying is the truth. Uh, if, If I'm stating the truth, I'm not being judgmental. I'm being factual. And the scriptures paint a picture for us that all of us, all of us, starting with a guy on the platform all the way back to the back door, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of that mark of perfection that God has set for us. And the Bible goes even further in Romans chapter 6, and it says that the wages or the payday or the consequences, the outcome of that sin is death. Now, you may say, well, Brooks, I I don't don't know know about this because I've sinned many times. I'm still alive. I'm still breathing. I'm still here. In fact, back in the Old Testament, right, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. And they didn't die right there on the spot. Oh, but they did. They did eventually. And they did die on the spot spiritually. If you remember the story in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, Adam and Eve were given a very simple command. They were created by God. They were placed in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And there in the garden, there was a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God would command to them, not to eat of that particular tree. He doesn't say why he commanded them to, to do that. My, my personal thought is, is that that tree was a visual reminder to Adam and Eve that every time they saw it, they were reminded that there was a God who was in existence that created them, a God in existence who sets the boundaries and that that God was not they themselves. They were created. He, was, he is creator. They are dependent upon him. He is totally and completely independent. And every time they would see that tree there, they'd be reminded of the boundary that was set. And the authority of their creator who said, do not eat of that particular tree. And God had said in Genesis 3, the day in which you eat of it, you will die. You know the story. Adam and Eve would eat of that tree. And yet they would live for years before they died physically. But that physical death would come. However, on the very spot, in the very moment that they disobeyed against God, they died spiritually. How do we know that? Because the very God that had created them, that they walked in unity with, that they walked in perfect harmony with, that they had fellowship with, perfect perfect relationship with, the moment they ate of that, their eyes were open. they knew they had sinned, and they began to hide from the God that they had once been so close to. They had died spiritually. And the Bible says... That the wages, the payday, the consequences of sin is death. That is horrible news. Because every single one of us here are underneath that truth. All of us have ultimately sinned. Now, some of you may say, well, Brooks, you know, I don't sin as much as the other guy. And I know I'm going to heaven because I've got a whole list in my mind that I can recite to God when I get there of all the people that have, have sinned more than me, that have done worse than I have. You know, I've got this mental list in my mind. You know, My good is going to outweigh my bad. Shouldn't be so sure about that. One, because the Bible never tells us that we get to heaven by our goodness. And even if we did, what if the goodness had to be ninety-five percent good? You know, we would all be in trouble. See, we can't get there by our goodness, and we can't get there because we're better than other people. We may say, "Well, I don't sin all the time. I don't sin that much. I haven't, you know, I haven't committed those A-list sins. Whatever those A-list sins may be in your mind or in your heart, haven't committed those." Well, see, the problem is is that regardless of what type of sins we've committed, the Bible doesn't talk about how much or how little. It just talks about the fact that we have. Let's say, for example, that uh, let's say I'm really, really thirsty. And let's say you've got, um, you've got Dr. Pepper. I like Dr. Pepper, all right? ice cold Dr. Pepper, right? That's some good stuff right there. And let's say you've got the old school bottle of Dr. Pepper, right? And I'm really thirsty and I, I'm just about to keel over for being so thirsty and I don't, I would, I would just pay good money for that. But you, let's say you just kind of open that Dr. Pepper and it, you can just, whoosh, whoosh, can, you, can you hear that? Whoosh, you hear that Dr. Pepper? And you just kind of, you, you, you take the top off of it and uh, you say, Brooks, would you like some Dr. Pepper? And it's like, man, I would love it. I'm about to die of thirst. So you go, okay, hold on one second you take one sip and you hand it to him. You know what? I love you, but I ain't touching that Dr. Pepper. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to drink. Any of you like that? You just don't drink after people, right? I'm not, I'm quirky, you know, about the whole food touching, that kind of stuff, but I'm not going to, I I will, I will drink after Susie sometimes and my kids sometimes if I'm kind of in that mood, but usually all of you, I ain't going to drink after you. Why? Because it only takes a little bit, right, to mess up the whole bottle of Dr. Pepper. It only takes a little to sort of contaminate the whole thing, right? I'm, don't take it personal. I'm not judging you, but it only takes a little bit of your slobber to mess up whatever it is that I'm going to be drinking, right? It only takes a little bit. So if we say, God, I'm going to heaven, right, because I've only got a little bit of sin, little or much is not the issue. It's the presence of it, it's the reality of it in our lives. And the Bible breaks the bad news to us that all of us have sinned. All of us are accountable. All of us are responsible for our sin before God. And yet the good news against the backdrop of that horrible news is that God chose, because of his great love for us, to send his own perfect son to die on the cross in our place as a substitute and as a sacrifice. 100% God, a perfect sacrifice to pay for the reality of sin in our lives. And yet 100% man, when Jesus came, to be our rightful substitute. And when he died, he died for us. He died for every sinner that ever dotted the, the landscape of history, no matter how bad or how good they may have been. He died for us in our place. And when he rose, he paved the pathway for us to have a relationship with God that doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come automatically. We have to respond to that message of the gospel by turning from our sin, by repenting of it, it says, by laying down our sin and even our own self-effort to get to God, we lay all that down and we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and we entrust our lives to him. That's the message of the gospel. And it's that message of the gospel that saves us, it's that message of the gospel that defines us, and it's that message of the gospel that ultimately sends us at the same time. So for the next few moments, I just want to take a little bit of time to break that statement down phrase by phrase and to sift it through Scripture this morning. Hopefully for you and for me, we'll see the very obvious implications that it has for our lives. First of all, the gospel saves us. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. The gospel saves us is what we're looking at. In Paul's letter to the church in the city of Ephesus here, we have it captured perfectly the way that Paul would have written it. In Ephesians chapter 1, he is beginning his very letter by talking about the impact of the gospel and how it connects to our salvation. Notice what he says here in Ephesians 1 in verses 13 and verse 14. If you don't have your Bibles, you can read with me on the overhead. Verse 13 Paul writes and he says, in him, that's a reference to Jesus, in him, you also, he says to these Christians, these followers of Christ in Ephesus, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in other words, there is a link of our salvation to the gospel. He says, after listening to that message, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, With a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What Paul is mentioning here is he's mentioning the concept of salvation, of rescue. And that it's the message of the gospel that is linked to our rescue, our salvation from our sins. That without the message of the gospel, we have no hope of being made right with God. We can't be right with God because we go to church or because we do good or because we give a lot of money to charitable causes. We can only be good with God and right with God because we've come to him through a relationship with Christ that we learned about when we heard the message of the gospel, the gospel of our salvation. Years ago, when I was working with a group of seminary or uh, uh, college students, I was home from break on seminary. It was 1999. And uh, there were some college students here doing ministry, and I was the supervisor of that particular group. And so the first week they were here, we went down to Tybee. They were going to be doing uh, ministry down at Tybee. And so we went down there to kind of look at the ministry site and introduce that to them. And we were on the pier. And uh, that particular day, it was a very windy day. The seas were very high. They were very rough that particular day. It was a cold day. It was in June, but it was still cold. They had jackets on and uh, just a very out of the ordinary type of a day. And so we're standing on the pier, not the very end of it, right, but we're standing kind of on the long walkway. And uh, suddenly we heard the cries of two people that were out in the water, and they were just about to go under. They were far from shore. They were about to get washed up against the piling there on the pier. And before you could even blink, two people went over the edge of that railing, off the pier, into the water, and ultimately took them to safety. It's that picture of rescue that the Bible is talking about when it mentions about our need for salvation from our sins. And rather than going over the edge of a, of a railing for us, Jesus himself left the glory of heaven and he came to this earth, he came to this, this world, this fallen world, and he felt the full weight of its sin because he'd be crucified in our place, and yet he did it for our own salvation. He did it to rescue us from our sin. He did it because it is the only thing that could ultimately make us right with God. And so when we look at the message of the gospel, it is the message of the gospel that brings us to Christ. We have to decide if we're going to yield our lives to him, but it's the gospel that introduces us to Jesus. It's the gospel that saves us. Not only does the message of the gospel save us, but it's that same message that also defines us. Let me ask a question. If you could somehow today boil down the basics of your life, what is it that you would say defines you? What defines you? I mean, when you think about maybe an obituary be written, being written for you one day, and it will be. In that little paragraph, two paragraphs, three paragraphs, how are you going to be defined? Are you going to be defined by your successes? Are you defined by your accomplishments today, by your acquisitions, by your possessions? Maybe you're defined by your past. You know, maybe there was a time back there in the past that you regret and you're, you still define yourself by that. Maybe there was a season in your life that you look back and, man, if you could hit a reset button, you'd hit it in an instant, but you can't. It doesn't work that way. And you look back to that season of your life. It may have been a week or a month or six months or a year. It may have been college. It may have been just kind of a long time in the in the desert for you. You were far from God. And still today, you define yourself by that time in your life. Is that, is that how you define yourself? Do you find your, define yourself by failure? How do you define yourself? When we look in the pages of Scripture, what we find is, For the follower of Jesus, we're defined by the gospel. (laughs) The same message that you saw in a video that you heard the choir sing about, that that you've heard me explain, is the same message that defines us as followers of Jesus. Uh, Let let me show this in Colossians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, flip two books further to the right, to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Here Paul is writing to a different church 2,000 years ago in the city of Colossae. And look at what he writes here about our standing before God, about what defines us. Look how he says it, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 10. He says, for in him, again, a reference to Jesus, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, verse 9 is saying Jesus is God. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you, he says to the Christian, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. In him, he says, you have been made complete. In other words... When we come to a relationship with Christ, when we hear the gospel and we are saved because we place our faith in Jesus, it is that message of the gospel that not only saves us, but it also defines us, that God looks at us through the lenses of our salvation, through the lenses of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are made new creations in Christ. You are a new creature in Christ if you've given your life to Christ. God does not look at you and define you by your past. God does not look at you and define you by what you possess. God doesn't look at you and define you by any success. You may have now or in the future. God doesn't define you by any of that. There's not anything that you could have done ever or can do to make God make, uh, love you less. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you more. You are defined by the message of the gospel. You are complete, the Bible says, in Christ. It's the message of the gospel that not only saves us, but it's also the message of the gospel that defines us. It's what causes us to do the things we do as believers. So many of you this week, and I heard the stories and I saw the examples of it. So many of you were out there, you were raking yards and you were cooking meals and you were watching children for other people that had so much to do in their yards and in their homes. Some of you were out there with chainsaws and you've got blisters and you're sore in places that you didn't even know existed It still worked on your body. You did all this kind of stuff this week, right? You were reaching out to people. Why? Because you're a good person no even though you are a good person i'm sure you did it why because you're a follower of christ you're defined by the message of the gospel this is what your savior did for you he left heaven where it was comfortable and he came to a world that hated him and nailed him to a cross and as you got out there and you served people that had been ravaged by this storm whose houses had been had been uh, severely impacted when you uh, set out to serve and to have an impact and to make a difference you did it why because you're defined by the message of the gospel your reflection of your Savior. And let me say, long after the effects of this hurricane have long since passed, and everybody's power's on, and everybody's yard's clean, and everybody's roof's repaired, and everybody's back where they want to be, long after that is done and and passed, listen, this world is going to be longing not just to hear the message of the gospel, but to see it demonstrated through lives that have been defined by it. Now, I'm telling you, this world is sick and tired of churches that say one thing and then stay in our holy huddles and do nothing about our faith. This world is needing to see people who worship a Savior with passion and Then, when we leave this property and we exit this, this place, we go out and we live what we claim to believe, and we do it to the point to where it costs us it 's what this world 's looking for, and there are many people that are not coming to Christ not because they haven 't heard the gospel. they hear the message of the gospel it 's because there is such a conflicted message between what they hear and between what they see demonstrated by the ones who proclaim that they have a relationship with God. Does that make sense? It's the message of the gospel that saves us, and it's the message of the gospel that defines us. We are who we are because of the gospel. We do what we do because of the gospel, but it is also the message of the gospel that sends us. It's probably the missing link We know we get saved because of the gospel. Many of us know that we're different because of the gospel. But far too many in churches today are too content to just sit where it's comfortable because they don't understand that the gospel also carries a call. We are sent people. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, you don't have to turn there. But in the gospel of Mark, Jesus And some of his last recorded words before he ascended to heaven, said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Not just preach the gospel to those who are like you or me, not just preach the gospel whenever we're going to get a pat on the back or a hug for it, but preach the gospel when it will cost us. Preach the gospel when it's not going to always want to be heard. Preach the gospel, why? Because people's eternities depend on it. Colossians chapter 1, you've already looked in chapter 2, look at what Paul would write in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. He says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, looking at our past before Jesus. He says, yet he, Jesus, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, before God the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. See, the gospel redefines us. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from what? The hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. You know, if I were to take out a bright light this morning, the brightest flashlight that I could find, and turn it on. You'd notice it, but it wouldn't make a difference. The reason for that is because of so much light that's already in this building. If I took a flashlight, the strongest I could find outside right now, and turned it on, even if it were to be a cloudy day, you'd see it, but you wouldn't necessarily recognize the difference. But if we turn all the lights out in this place, (laughs) and I turned on that flashlight, you would certainly recognize the impact that it has. Why? Because the darker the room, the brighter the light. And there's a principle to be found there. A principle that I think for a lot of people in our church through the course of this past week, we've been able to learn against the backdrop of this hurricane that came through. And the principle is this, that the darker the circumstance, the brighter the gospel. The darker the circumstances in a person's life, oftentimes the more ready they are to hear the message of peace, and the message of hope, and the message of salvation and the message of life that comes through here in the gospel. You know, for you, as you've served through the course of this week, you've served as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ who came ultimately to serve you. After this week passes and you continue to live a life that's sacrificed and given, yielded and invested in others, you're doing that as a reflection of the Lord Jesus who yielded and invested His life for you. For some of you this morning, the most important decision that you'll ever make is a decision about what to do with the gospel. You've never placed your faith in Jesus. You're just sort of hoping for the best whenever you stand before God one day. And when you get there, you've always just sort of hoped and assumed that, you know what, my good is going to outweigh my bad, and he's going to just open the doors, and I'm just going to go right on into heaven. But it doesn't work that way. Now, the only way that we have the assurance of being right with God is when we understand we don't have what it takes. And we need forgiveness, and we need rescue. And in humility, it's when we bow our hearts and we ask the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and paid it all already, to come in and forgive us and take over. And right where you sit, if you've never made that decision, you don't need me to help you, and you don't have to raise a hand, and you don't have to walk an aisle or even join the church. But right where you sit today, if you need to know for sure, with a heart that that genuinely means it, you can pray right where you are. And ask Jesus to forgive you and to be your Savior and your Lord, and he'll do it. I was a little kid when I prayed that prayer. And it was nothing magical about the words, because I didn't even know the right words. It was all about yielding my heart in authenticity. And in my backyard, the best that a little kid could, that's what I did. And you know what? I've had a lot of ups and downs since then, but I've never been the same. Why? Because the gospel saved me. It defines me. And it sends me. You can have Jesus right here today. And if you've already made that decision, then God waits for you to answer that call to be not only redefined by your salvation, but also sent as his representative and his his ambassador into a very, very dark world with a message that's changed you and redefined you so that others can know him as you do. Let's pray. Lord, in every message, there's a response. Lord, in the Old Testament, when the prophets would speak, they would speak for a response. Lord, it was a call to your people to come back to you. Even when you, Lord Jesus, would proclaim the message of the gospel, when you'd proclaim yourself as God who would come, the Messiah, you would proclaim that for a response. And Lord, today, as we've sung and as we've seen video and as we have looked in your word, All of this now comes to a response of what we're going to do with you and what we're going to do with the message of the gospel. Lord, I pray for those that don't know you today, that have never given their lives to Jesus, that it's the decision that they'll make right where they sit. In the simplest words they know, God, with a heart that is genuine, that they would invite Jesus to forgive them and take over their lives. And God, for those of us that have made that choice already, I pray that we would understand like never before, and maybe it's a backdrop of what has happened this particular week, That'll help us to see that this world needs us. It needs our message. And Lord, you're not going to send an angel and you're not going to write something in the sky for the world to see. You're going to send your people whose lives are different with a message that never changes. That you're a God who still meets us where we are and who saves us when we call upon you. Lord, if it takes a yard full of debris, if it takes a tree on a house to bring somebody to Jesus, Lord, a billion years from now from heaven, they'll look back and be grateful for that storm. And so God, use us. Even though we may not always know the words to say, even though we may not count ourselves as someone who would be a minister, Lord, we are your people and you provide what we need. And so give us boldness to serve and to to speak the message of life. And whatever decision we need to make today to help us to do it, God, may we get that one right before we leave. Bless this time, we pray, and it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.